You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. y'all this morning on a three-day weekend. Woot, woot. Y'all are really pumped about that. That's good. Apparently, y'all need to just go to work on Monday because redemption is a community centered on Jesus, pursuing connection and redemption through grace, sharing, and exploration. We're really glad you're here. Um, If you're new to redemption, welcome. Uh, There is a card in the seat back in front of you. If you fill that out and drop it in the black box on your way out the door, we'd love to reach out, say hello, hear your story, and get to share a little bit of ours if you're interested. Um, But we are wrapping up our series on afterlife, and really we're wrapping up our entire calendar year, so to speak. Uh, So we started back in fall this year of hope, and Over the summer, we'll continue to have these conversations of hope, but really this series has been the capstone of this, and I want us to finally, at the end of this, in our final sermon on this idea, really nail down, wait, what exactly is the ultimate hope of the cosmos? What are we actually really hoping in? What are we expecting Jesus to do for us? And we've untangled a lot of it over the last several weeks. We've talked a lot about what it's not over the last several weeks, and this morning, I really want us to sit in the glory and the beauty of what our hope really is in Jesus. But first, there are uh, a couple of lies we need to look at, and I think they'll be familiar to all of us. This is coming from N.T. Wright. So I've mentioned before his book, Surprised by Hope, is the foundation of so much of this series. It was a transformative book in my life. I think it would be a transformative book in your life, so much so that I have free copies for you. If you want one, come see me. I will give it to you. It costs us like five bucks. It's really not a big deal. Don't feel any kind of way about taking one. Um, But in that, he outlines these two big myths or lies. And the first is the lie of progress. The lie of progress is the idea that began back in the Renaissance that humanity is on this trajectory towards building a better world. This is the lie that humanity has made things more good and more beautiful and more hopeful and more salvific so that if we keep going down this road, we will ultimately end up in a place where the entire cosmos has been redeemed by humanity's ingenuity. Right? This is 
the familiar story we hear from politicians, humanity's progress, particularly if you vote for this one or that one, will win the day. And in the end, we will build a utopian society built on the backs of human ingenuity and intelligence and work, right? If we were to characterize this, right, and we're stereotyping and painting in broad generalizations, which is always a really safe thing to do, I strongly encourage it, um, but this would be the progressives of the world. This is the liberal idea that if we can just change things, things will eventually get better. And not just change in the sense that like this thing's bad and we need to change it, but change in the sense that we can keep changing and keep progressing until we eventually get to the place where everything is good. Vote for change. Vote for progress a step towards better humanity, a step towards a better society, and subtly we begin to believe that our utopian world will emerge from among us instead of from outside of us. I was talking to someone in the hallway earlier about AI, and I don't have any particular insights about AI, um, so if you think that this is about to be an anti... Sorry, let me fix my microphone because it's pointing in the wrong direction. There we go. That's better. I just made Harrison's life so much easier. Okay. He's back there just like, ah, okay. So we were talking about AI, and, and one of just the realities of technology is that um, every technology, as it's going to improve, also has like a, a downside that we don't see yet, right? So Ezra Klein is a podcaster for the New York Times, and a friend of mine shared one of his podcasts from the last couple of weeks, and it was on the mental health crisis of young people. And if you haven't heard about this, it's, it's unbelievable. Like, the statistics are wild. And it is not, a, it's not an American phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon, and it is just... Um, it's hard to hear, especially as someone who's raising a two-year-old daughter in the world, and, and, and particularly hearing the effect on females... Um, but just teenagers, young people in general. One of the things that he points out in, in the podcast is that so much of the mental health crisis, right, and, and there's, right, it's, there's a multitude of things that are causing it and contributing to it, but the, the main thing that they're coming back to is everything seems to take a turn around 2011 and 2012 when we put smartphones in the hands of teenagers and then we gave them Instagram. And we gave them Twitter, and we gave them TikTok, and we gave them Vine, RIP Vine. See, now there's the true millennials in the room. <laughs> and there's these direct causations to everything from like uh, a lack of good sleep, which is a huge contributor to like mental health and just overall health and well-being. If you don't know anything about sleep, sleep is incredibly important to your, your well-being and flourishing as a human being. There's a whole, the like we could do a whole sermon series on this, but sometimes God needs you to let go and go to bed and just trust that you are not the center of the universe and that everything will be here when you wake up in the morning. This is the mini version of that sermon. But sleep is like really good for you, it's really necessary for you, and having a phone that sits by your head that buzzes all night long or lights up, or even just, even if it doesn't do those things, I've got mine turned off, it's fine, and yet the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes, whether it's at 2 a.m. or 5 a.m., is you roll over and you grab it and you look at it, right? And so my whole point is this, this idea of progress, this idea of like this new technology will save us, it will progress us, there is always a cost, 
This idea that progress and technology and ingenuity is going to somehow, the next improvement is just around the corner. It's going to absolutely change our lives is a lie. I'm, it's, <laughs> I was telling a friend uh, in a text group, is the one who shared the Azure Klein episode with me. I was like, I guess I'm just becoming a Luddite. Like, I just hate all technology. I'm just going to go live on a farm and grow a garden and walk to work, which I can't do because I live too far away. So, anyways. But then there's, there's this whole other lie that we're also, will, you will be really familiar with. It's one we've talked about before. But as all of this has happened, there's been a massive shift. And, and some of this is possibly related to some of the mental health crisis that particularly Gen Z is going through. The last five years of religious and political turmoil has bubbled up in a world that has sat under the burden of this pandemic, and we're seeing an entire generation of young people who are like in like absolute turmoil and mental health crisis and all of this stuff, who are just looking at the world and going, what is the point? And this, this nihilistic, like whatever, man, I don't even know, of, of young people today is just, it's hard to see and it's heartbreaking um, and yet it has led to this whole other thing I'll get to. But, but one of my favorite depictions of this in film, because I like love movies, y'all know I'm a movie nerd. So if you've seen um, Everything Everywhere All at Once, there's this, the, the millennial mom is raising the Gen Z daughter who is like, you don't understand me, you don't get me. There's all sorts of things we could have a conversation about from that movie. But I love their depiction of the Gen Z person who is like just nihilistic and whatever and let's just give in to the everything bagel that's going to suck the world into it. If you haven't seen it, it's a great film and there's all sorts of weird things like everything bagels that are going to destroy the universe. But it's this nihilistic idea that whatever, nothing matters, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing we can do. Teenage depression, anxiety are through the roof. Gen Z reports being more lonely than ever, having less friends, less in-person interactions, and less sex than several generations previous. There's a lack of connection, a lack of feeling like anything is worthwhile. And the shocking data emerging strongly suggests, right, smartphones, social media, these things that promised connection and so in all of this, we have a whole world looking for some sort of answer. And in that, what has been offered is this shift away from materialistic op optimism. Science is going to save us. Technology is going to save us. Uh, we're going to build this utopian future. And instead, we're going to turn inward to spirituality, detached from some sort of objective, transcendent object. And so we're going to meditate. Not on anything in particular, we're just going to meditate because it's like good for our mental health. And we're going to go on spiritual retreats that the retreat is not really directed towards anything or about anything. It's just you experiencing spirituality in whatever way uh, that is significant to you. And in the last 10 years, we have seen a shift from material prog progress offering a way of salvation to a rise in spiritual practices that have provided a therapeutic coping for a generation that has realized we're doomed. So in the meantime, let me just do what I can to keep my sanity. And the spirituality movement is, of course, to be expected, as N.T. Wright in his book pointed out when he wrote it over 20 years ago, that if you move away from materialistic optimism without embracing Judaism or Christianity, and what he's really saying is Jesus, you are quite likely to end up with some kind of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that the material world is bad, the spiritual world is good, and so you should only care about spirituality. Material world is just all going away. The hope that 
our salvation is in our escape. Whether that's tuning the world out or actually what conservative Christians have tended to believe and teach, literally the rapture where we will escape. That God will save us by grabbing us, removing us from the material world and rescuing us and delivering us to heaven. So that the gospel, the good news of Jesus became a version of the gospel that was when you die, you're going to go to heaven. And we spent a lot of time talking about that over the last few weeks. But this myth in its various form is often portrayed by turning inward in order to get in touch with the divine part of yourself, which is an absolutely Gnostic idea. And I've heard it in so many different ways over the last several weeks. Like if you know what to hear, it's just like all over the place. And so you hear things like, we were, we were souls before we were born and we're getting in touch with our pre-eternal, pre-created selves. Like I'm hearing this from Christians even. And that salvation is just understanding that, that divine part of us that really is God holistically and together and we can then, you know, find ourselves in that way. But over and over and over again, this one particular phrase keeps coming up. And I'm curious how many of you will have heard it or how much of this I've fed into my own social media algorithms. And so it just keeps spitting it back at me. But it's not just been from one person. It's been from like four or five different people. And I'm like, to the point now, who, who originated, like who's Quote is this, because everyone is claiming it for their own, but it's this one. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Have you heard this one? This is the idea that the true part of you, the good part of you, is the spiritual part of you. That the human part of you, the part of you that needs to eat and sleep and drink and be connected with other human beings in their physical form, that's not the real part of you. The real part of you is that internal soul that God is actually and really saving. Your soul is eternal. Your body is not. So therefore, your soul is what matters to God. And we have reduced salvation, no wonder, to going to heaven when we die. But listen to Jesus again. John chapter 5, if you've got your Bibles, you can open it up with me. I'm reading out of the NRSVUE. How about that one? Just updated edition, that's all that means. But you feel free to read out of the Bible of your choice. John chapter 5, verse 21. Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. Right, so this is, Jesus has just healed someone and the Pharisees are coming to him and be like, hey, why are you healing someone on the Sabbath? And he's now in this embroiled argument with the religious leaders and he's explaining to them, no, no, you don't understand. My authority comes from God. And if you, if you want to know, like, do I actually have the authority from God? Know this, God, who is the author of life, who is the giver of life, has given me the authority to also give life. And if you don't believe that I can also give life, watch as I give life to a dead man. That is the summary of the argument. But I want us to pull out some of what Jesus is saying because it is important for us to hear. Verse 22, the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. 
Okay, so our, our whole sermon today is on life. And I'm going to break it down into two key pieces here. The first piece is Jesus is saying that in him, he is inviting you into the life that is to come right here and right now. Part two is Jesus very clearly explaining what the life that is to come will look like in its fullness. So these, these are the two parts. The first, the hope that Jesus offers is the hope of real life here and now. We're not waiting for God to do something. Jesus has already done something and is doing something among us. So the Christian hope for the cosmos, which is the hope for each one of us individually, is the hope of life that Jesus is offering the world. It's the hope of life. Okay, so what in the world is life, right? This is hopefully the question that you're asking yourself. But before we get there, I want us to point out the obvious. This is why Christians for centuries have centered ourselves on the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Because it is Jesus coming into the world, Jesus dying for the world, and Jesus being resurrected that stand at the center of this idea of life. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus offers something to the world. It is the embodiment of God at Christmas and the embodied God of the resurrection returning from death at Easter, which stand at the center of our hope. And Jesus's invitation is an embodied invitation. I need you to hear that and sit in that for a moment. Jesus doesn't need you to be less than human. You are embodied. That's a good thing. Your body is good to God and all of its weird functions. (laughs) Listen to N.T. Wright again as he makes the point clear. Only in the Christian story itself do we find any sense that the problems of the world are solved not by a straightforward upward movement into the light. Right? So it's not the progressivism of like material optimism. And it's not the escapism of Gnosticism in all of its various forms, but instead, it is by the creator God going down into the dark to rescue humankind from the world and its plight. So there's two things to note here that Wright summarizes so well. One is that the agent of salvation is God, not us, and it comes from outside of the cosmos that is absolutely inside of the cosmos. But when we say holy, what we mean is God is not me. God is outside of me and I am in need of something other than myself to save me. This is one of the the foundations of AA, is a recognition that you need help outside of you. But the second thing that Wright is really helpful in, in noticing here is that in God's entering into the darkness, that it's not humanity's upward mobility into enlightenment, progress, or power, but God's condescension into darkness and even death that saves the world. And so we're given this model that the Christian story uh, shows us that our deliverance from death and entropy is outside of ourselves and it is cross-shaped. So that there's something in that that shows us what this life is. So I want to go back and look at what Jesus says. Jesus tells us that that this life does not begin when when we die. Look at verse 
24 again, if you've got your Bibles in front of you. He says, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. We're not going to go super nerdy here, but the, the Greek verb form here, and they're very particular about tenses, right? Past, future, present, like that kind of thing. It is super clear that this is a present tense verb. That the, the eternal life that Jesus is talking about is not something that will happen in the future. It is something that is happening right now. Whoever believes has eternal life here and now and does not come under judgment. Also present tense, which is interesting. And has passed from death to life. That's not even future tense. That's not present tense. That is past tense, completed action. It has already happened. So what Jesus is saying here is there is this shift that, that when you entrust yourself to him, when you um, um, buy into this story, there is a real invitation to move from this old way of being into this new way of being that we are not waiting for, we are not looking toward that has actually happened here and now. And I think this can be really, really helpful when we understand that when John, the gospel writer, uses the word life, it is synonymous with what Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe as the kingdom of God. So that the kingdom of God in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, hey, the king, repent, the kingdom of God is, is near, is what John is getting at when he uses the word life or eternal life. So often what we hear is, for God so loved the world, he gave us, right? we hear John talking about life, and we think heaven. That means heaven. Jesus is talking about heaven. But if you like take that definition away and then go and read the gospel of John, you'll find that like heaven is strikingly absent. There is no conversation about heaven if you don't interpret heaven or life to be heaven. You, you with me? So then, wait, what is it? What is the eternal life that Jesus is offering in the book of John? It is the kingdom of God. Well, what is the kingdom of God? We've talked about this in every sermon. I want to summarize it here. Life in John is a way of showing up in the world that is subversive, that goes against the values and vision and way of being of the old world of death. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's faithfulness. It's forgiveness. It's grace. It's generosity. It's gratitude. It's presence. And so much of what we've uncovered in this series is centered on this idea of the kingdom of God. It's why at the beginning of this series, we've been praying the Lord's prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Deliver us from this world of death and help us live into the life that you've invited us into here and now. This is our attempt week in and week out to orient ourselves to this invitation of Jesus. Because in almost every other moment of the day, we're probably being invited into ways of death. We're probably being invited into ways of undoing, ways of chaos, or these things are being done to us. And so week after week, we've been praying, Lord, let your will be done in my life as it is in heaven, in my home as it is in heaven, in my workplace as it is in heaven. And we're not only reminding our souls of the reality of God's inbreaking, inbreaking kingdom of life, we participate in it. 
So the reality is that people outside of the kingdom of God can begin to experience the kingdom of God because they experience you as you follow Jesus. As you live into this way of life instead of death, you might become someone else's invitation into a way of life instead of death. And we show up in ways that offer love and justice and forgiveness and grace and real, actual, tangible, material redemption. And we talk about this uh, a bit But it's the question of whose life is materially different because they know me. The most recent episode of Ted Lasso, don't worry, no spoilers. Some of you are looking at me like, you had better not. Forgiveness, grace, right? No. Okay. The last episode of Ted Lasso, the the whole conversation was just, the uh, the whole series, sorry, episode, thank you, there it is. The whole episode was just on... all of these different ways to wrestle with forgiveness and what it can look like in in various aspects. But the idea here is that at the end of the day, forgiveness can be transformative. It can be redemptive and people's lives can materially be different. And so this is the way of Jesus. Jesus. It's new life. It's divine life. It's living out the kingdom of God, even though we live in a kingdom of death. And this is why the disembodied spiritual answers to the world's problems are never actually really a solution. It's why, um, right, I always wrestled with, when I was younger and I was a Southern Baptist, we would go on mission trips, and the whole point of the mission trip was to, like, we just need to share the good news with people so they can hear it, believe it, so that they can go to heaven when they die. And we would fly in, like, commandos, and we'd, blah, 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 here's a track, and here's a gospel, and we had, like, actually had bullhorns and did the whole thing. And then we'd come back home after a week, and we'd pat ourselves on the back and be like, man, we're awesome. How many souls did we save? Meanwhile, we didn't do anything to address the real, actual, material problems in the world, much less stick around long enough to build relationships with people that might actually be transformative and redemptive and good. So what about when we die? So we talked last week about death. I won't rehash the whole thing. But we noted that more than anything, death is disembodiment. And I, I strongly encourage you, like if, you're, if you missed last week's sermon, if you never listened to me say anything else, like that, that's a good one because I think it challenges a lot of the notions of what many of us have come to believe as followers of Jesus. But in that, we talked about death is disembodiment, that your soul being stripped from your body is not actually a good thing, even if it means you're in heaven after that happens, right? Sure, that's a great thing, but you are still, in fact, dead. And so then, what is life after we die? Life that actually really overcomes death, the severing of our bodies and our souls, is re-embodiment. It is resurrection. It is when our dead, rotting corpses, corpse, corpses, our dead, rotting bodies are reanimated and brought back from the earth. Right? And, and lest you think I'm like cuckoo and I'm starting a new cult, welcome. You can get it on the ground floor. It's great. 
listen to Jesus. Very truly, I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Right, so he's, he's in this debate with the Pharisees and he's escalating. He's like, hey, look, I've come to bring life and my words are life and people are hearing my words and they're believing them and they're like entering into this new world of life and they're passing from this old way of death into this new way of life. They're passing from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. But in case you don't believe me, let me tell you, a time is coming and is now here when corpses will hear my voice and they will come back to life. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel of John, is Jesus just like blowing smoke or like what is he referring to you can shout it out Lazarus in a few chapters after this debate the the culminating miracle in the gospel of John is a dead rotting corpse that is so dead and so rotting that when they pull the stones away to get to the body the people are like oh this dude is like bloated and smelly and glah and Jesus says Lazarus come forth he gets up I don't know how and I don't know why but the stench of death is gone and Lazarus comes out Jesus is like any questions right (laughs) he goes on verse 26 for just as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son also to have life in himself in the center of all life In the cosmos is Jesus. For whom and by whom and through whom all things live and move and have their being. He is our home. He is our sustainer. So I recently, I'm I'm like way off here. I'm so sorry. I'm not sorry. Actually, this is great for me anyways. (laughs) So I recently was like struggling with my own ability to be loved, even by God, and I've just been processing some of that. And I read, uh, there's this Catholic mystic guy, and he was talking about, he was redefining what God's love looked like in a really tangible, direct way. And he was talking about this idea of God's love is like the sun, and that the sun shines down on everything and gives everything life. Gives life to the fruit, gives life to the flowers, and gives life to the weeds. And it's this idea of this compassionate, loving God that is constantly giving life to all things. And then you realize, oh, what Jesus is saying here is that is me, the very breath in the lungs that the Pharisees are using to plot his murder is given to them by the one they're trying to murder. Each beat of their heart, each each firing of their synapses to come up with the plan is being given as a gift from Jesus. Verse 28, do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming, right? So now we're talking future, when all who are in their graves question how many human beings are in their graves right now that aren't alive, right? The answer is 100% except for like two in the Bible. That's a whole other conversation. If you've got a question, right? Redemption, H-O-U, Kwanda, Okay. when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. 
this is not an invitation to go to heaven when you die. This is an invitation to come back from the dead. So the eternal hope for the Christian is and has always been resurrection. Our hope is and has always been a material embodied hope. And so this idea that the world doesn't matter is frankly, in my opinion, an unchristian one. The world deeply matters. Justice deeply matters. The environment deeply matters, at least to God. And if we want to be, as the people of God, about the things of God, then those things ought to matter to us as well. N.T. Wright summarizes it this way. And this is like, I don't know how much clearer you can get. The central message of Scripture about the future of humanity is one of bodily resurrection from the dead. From Old Testament to New Testament, this is the hope of the cosmos. So much so that Romans 8 says all of the cosmos, all of creation is waiting for the resurrection of humanity so it can get right. And I want to quickly look at a few other passages. Um, But before we do, I also just want to show you that this is also the witness of the history of the church. Like this is not some sort of crazy new brand, brand new thing that I've discovered. Look at this. No, no, no. This has always been the case in ways that we, if we're coming from particular backgrounds and traditions, have probably lost. Wright goes on to say, until at least the late 18th century, tombstones etched into stone, tombstones and memorials were inscribed with the Latin word resurgum which means I will get up. Indicating that the now dead person believed in an intermediate sleep followed by a new bodily life at some point in the future. Our hope is and always has been a resurrection. Listen to what some of the New Testament has to say about this. I won't read a ton. There's a a lot out there. I'm gonna pick one particular passage and I wanna invite you just to listen with a posture of receptivity here, right? Rather, right, and there's an invitation to dissect these things and I want you to actually take that, but let's take that afterwards. You can go in tomorrow morning and look at this passage and dissect it. For now, I want you to just sit and hear it. Let it wash over you. Let it enter your soul. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say that there's no such thing as resurrection? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we're testifying about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that there is no resurrection from the dead. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not even been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is meaningless. And you're still in your sin. And those who have died in Christ, they're just gone. If for this life only, we hope in Christ, 
And we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Our hope is not an immaterial spiritual hope. In the same way that our experience of eternal life here and now is not an immaterial experience of life, it tangibly and materially matters. And our hope is exactly what the oldest creeds of the church confessed when they say that from heaven, Christ will one day return and raise the dead and establish his kingdom of life throughout the cosmos. So we're not hoping for escape. We're hoping for real, actual redemption, for renewal, restoration, We're hoping for resurrection. And this means that the cosmos matters. This life matters. Your body matters. You matter. As we conclude, I want us to sit in the hope of one of my favorite scriptures as we listen to the ultimate hope we have in Jesus. A hope that we're invited to participate in right here and right now. Listen with me to Revelation chapter 21. Then I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. I pray this morning that those words will stir up a longing and an ache, not to one day go home, but for one day home to come and make its place among us. In the ancient church, there was a simple prayer, just one Aramaic word. It was so powerful and so potent and captured so much of this idea of hope that we've talked about for the last year that for many Christians, it became a mantra 
that among persecution and among stress and among famine and among like plagues and darkness and death and in this world of chaos and destruction and death, they would just come back to this mantra. A centering prayer. A prayer for when we don't have any words. And it was simply this. Maranatha. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Make us whole. Bring your life. Bring this dying world to life. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.